Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. You know those conversations where you have them with someone and you just walk away feeling so inspired and so uplifted? That was my conversation with my friends, Kirsten and Julian Saunders. Now, if you aren't familiar with them, they are an incredible power couple who are based out of Atlanta and they're co-creators of the lifestyle blog, Rich and Regular. They also just recently wrote a book called Cashing Out and their book is so good because it talks about how to win the wealth game by walking away. Kind of counterintuitive, right? In addition to their book, they have a really popular show called Money on the Table, which is truly like Netflix quality stuff. It's beautifully done. It covers some really tough topics and it combines money, tough conversations, and even good food. It's really, really amazing. You've got to go check it out. Together, they have paid off over $200,000 of debt in five years, and they were able to walk away from their corporate jobs before turning 40. In this conversation, we cover a ton of ground. We start off by talking about the book and how they came up with the title, how they came up with the cover. It's really quite interesting to see that process. We talk about the scarcity mindset that Julian experienced during his his childhood and how that affected his spending decisions much later on. We talk about the flip side, how Kirsten had such a different childhood and how that affected their relationship. We talk about overly abundant mindsets and how that can really affect you early in adulthood, how Kirsten and Julian paid off that $200,000, what that process was like for them. We also talk about learning to appreciate the simpler things in life and even travel fatigue. Yes, travel fatigue. So if you've ever told yourself, oh, I just need to travel even more, you're definitely going to want to hear their message around that. We talk about being able to taste test different lifestyles as a result of financial independence and how powerful that can be for your more or less self-discovery, honestly. And remember, I said Kirsten and Julian are all about having tough conversations. So we talk about what black excellence is, but why this concept is not really a sustainable motivator. It's a really, really good point, And I really enjoyed learning from them. We talk about Julian's experience studying abroad in Japan and learning what Kiroshi means, which is basically death by overwork. We also cover why Kirsten and Julian want to tackle those controversial issues that surround money and why it's so important to be having these conversations with our communities. Guys, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I know I definitely did. If you enjoy it, do me the biggest favor and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast player you're listening to, and then head over to Instagram. Go check out Rich and Regular's Instagram and say hi. Let them know that you listened in and that they inspired the heck out of you because I know they definitely did me. All right. Without further ado, let's go ahead and turn the mic over to my friends, Kirsten and Julian. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I am so excited to be joined by my friends, Julian and Kirsten. Guys, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks for having us. We've been looking forward to this one for a while. Yeah. I am so stoked for all the stuff that you guys are up to, but most importantly, you just launched a book called Cashing Out. Congratulations. Tell me a little bit about the book process. Yeah. So Cashing Out is a true labor of love. I understand why people call it a book baby now because that's what it feels like. Um, It started three years ago with a proposal that we just wanted to kind of tell our story and our pursuit of fire and really didn't have like a career angle to it. But then after we got the deal and started writing, 
the pandemic happened and work, the world of work, the world of the world, everything just changed. And so as we were probably like three or four chapters in, we met with our editors, the editor in chief, and just decided like, this is not actually what we want to talk about. We want to talk about our experience in the workplace and how that led us to really get serious about our finances and led us to pursue financial independence. And what came of that is cashing out where we weave our story in between these key financial lessons and kind of give you the blend of like a financial and career blueprint for navigating these times. And we're really proud of it. And we love all of the response that we've gotten from people who've read it so far. It's an incredible book and everything that you said in here, I thought was really great, but I specifically loved that you tied in so much of your personal experience into this book. And it was, here's my personal experience backed up with some science and some data and what you can do for your own life. So I just wanted to give you guys props. It's really very well-written. You guys did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. It, um, like Hirson said, it it was easily the hardest thing we've ever done. (laughs) Um, like our real estate experience, our corporate experience, even to a degree, our entrepreneurial experience. Now, I think getting over that hump, um, and writing that book, it was, was really, really one of the most challenging things we've ever had to do. And obviously it wasn't made easy doing that during a pandemic, but, um, it, it's, it's something that we're really proud of. And, to our point, we're really happy with the response so far. I love this. I'm curious, Kirsten, you, you mentioned that it was also very hard. So tell us a little bit about that process. I don't think people understand why it's hard. And so tell us about like the writing process and what specifically made that so difficult. Yeah, a lot of us are used to writing for the internet, writing blog posts, writing short form tweets, writing you know Instagram captions. When you're writing a book, the structure is entirely different. There are lots of people who help you structure it in a way that 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 addresses where the reader is. Mm-hmm. It's just a very and even the way books are purchased is very different than like an algorithm and a hashtag delivering content to you. And so everything from the cover to what the chapters are called to the experience of flipping it, like that all has to be considered as you're writing your manuscript. And you have to have a premise in mind, like what is the big idea? What's what's mm-hmm. the point you're trying to prove? What what are you trying to make? And so when it comes to money, it's really difficult to not just be like a definition, you know, math class. <laughs> like we didn't want that kind of book. <laughs> Those exist for a reason, and and they're great for people. But we really wanted a book for people who don't typically read finance books. And so finding the right team of editors and and, uh, marketers and PR people to package that up into like one offering took us a while. It took us a minute to figure out like, what are we trying to say and to who? And then how do we structure that in a way that, you know, fits within like (laughs) a a book? I'd also say it also costs us a lot of money, right? It it costs us a lot of money. And I know that's like a weird way of thinking about it because I think a lot of people think um, like, oh, you got a book deal or something like that. And I was like, yes, you do get an advance, but there are mechanics to how that is uh, sort of distributed that sort of really kind of take away from that entire process. But then also we're first time authors. And while we've been writing for, uh, I mean, I know I've been writing at least 15, 20 years. Uh, This is the first time writing a book, something like this. And so we had to bring on professional help. We had to work with with, uh, someone on the front end just to get through the proposal price mm-hmm. uh, process, just to organize mm-hmm. our thoughts. Because there was so much that we wanted to talk about, but you've got to prune and prune and then kind of mm-hmm. connect 
some of those ideas. And even through that process, you have an, a team on the side of the publisher that you can work with who will help you to organize those thoughts and ask clarifying questions. But they're one person that- Yeah, they've got 10 books 10 that they're doing that the they're doing. same thing for. And so we had to bring on external help to uh, sort of help guide us through that process as well. And so, you know, I, I think- especially a lot of professionals, you know, you may have had that experience if you're like creating a presentation. And sometimes before you present, you kind of want to show it to someone because you're so in it. Uh-huh. You don't really know what it is. That's really where it helps to have like other people who've done it 10, 20, 50 times before mm-hmm. to kind of help you with it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a long process, but I think it was definitely worth it. Oh, I think so too. I think you can tell the amount of love that was put into the book. And I think that's something that I loved, especially, but one piece I want to really focus on is the cover. There's a lot of subtle nods to culture that I appreciated. So talk to me a little bit about creating the cover. Like, how did you guys come up with the idea? How'd you come up with the title? Like, give me all the deets there. Oh man, those are each separate stories because <laughs> we had like <laughs> five or six titles before we landed on sure. cashing out. Really? We, yeah. For the long time, the book was called Rich and Regular. Then it was called um, This Won't End Well, <laughs> which are <laughs> terrible idea. Yeah. During COVID too. <laughs> yeah. Our yeah. agent was like, oh. no one wants to pick up a book titled This Won't End Well. <laughs> What's the incentive to finish it? I was like, it? you know what? Yeah. That's a good point. And she's like, maybe for fiction, maybe for like a romance novel, but like for a business book. It's so freaking funny. I love it. We went through like several iterations and landed on cashing out um, after we, after, honestly, after we had written the book, we went back and said like, what's the theme here? And then comb through to make sure we map it back to cashing out. But um, the cover is another interesting story because we had a different creative vision for the cover. We wanted to be in like hoodies. <laughs> like we wanted to yeah. be super casual, kind of hip hop, but yeah. also like Mark Zuckerberg vibes. He's a bad example, but you get what I'm saying. Like, I cool. totally get it. I'm just cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, they hired, um, the publisher hired a stylist who... And alongside our photographer worked out like a color scheme and brought in a bunch of different looks for us. Those are clothes that we normally like would not pick for ourselves, but they worked really well. (laughs) Again, in the context of that, this is where you learn to listen to experts in the context of like a cover, they work really well. And um, the necklace that I'm wearing is from like a local African designer. And to your point, she was really thoughtful about incorporating things that matter to us into the cover and um yeah we we loved how it turned out yeah, but even even the final cover i mean wasn't final up until the last second like there was a completely different font oh yeah it was green cashing out was in green wow. i'm like whole, looking at it i can't even picture it so if anybody hasn't yeah. seen it <laughs> there were so many other things but again this is where you're really grateful to be working with people who know how to present ideas yeah. um and, and can find a really good balance between preserving your vision and your ideas and your words because you are the author, but also, you know, asking you those questions. Who's it for? Let me remind you who it, who's it for. Who's what are they seeing as they're seeing this book? Who else is going to be on a shelf next to them and so mm-hmm. on? And so it's like, OK, I understand why we would make certain decisions that might seem like minutia, but font choices and even like gloss finishes, all that stuff. We were not like intimately involved with the process, but again, that's and thank goodness. Cause all of our ideas were horrible. like, 
<laughs> we weren't even supposed too. to be on the cover. We had like a, a vision of like somebody climbing a corporate ladder that was disintegrating. Like, <laughs> which could could have been cool too. I mean, to, to give you props. Could have been but. cool. But she's like, <laughs> when you look at the finance books that have come out in the last year, like all of them just have the author on the cover. Like, they do. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, put, just take the picture. Show up. So. Yeah, I, I like it. I think it makes sense too. Cause I think with books, especially when you see the authors behind it, I don't know if this is just me, but I feel like I immediately connect more. I'm like, oh, cool. Let's see what they're about. I just love exactly. it. I think it's great. Yeah. It definitely gets people to pick up the book off the shelf. Even if you don't buy it, like, do you right. at least pick it up? Because you see something in me that is interesting so versus funny. like, you're trying to figure out like, what is this about? Is this a ladder? Like what <laughs> is it? What's happening? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm really curious about each of your backgrounds. Let's dive into that. If you don't mind, like how was money talked about when you were a kid? Was this even talked about at all? Uh, Julian, let's start with you. Like what was money like when you were a kid? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a um, uh, during an era which later became known as the crack era. Um, it was mm-hmm. tough. It looked like old school episodes of Law and Order. Um, like that's just what I knew as home. I, there was there was no Mulberry Lane in Brooklyn. It was New York Avenue. Um, it was drugs and violence and. That's just how I grew up. I didn't know any better. I spent my summers going to Jamaica because I lived in a predominantly uh, Caribbean um, neighborhood. And so that's when I would see another way of life in trees and grass and chickens and goats and all kinds of stuff. Um, As far as money was concerned, uh, it never really came up outside the uh, context of money is scarce. And so you better hold on to whatever you have. Um, you better get a good job. Like I think most people, you know, were raised to believe, get a good job, that sort of thing. Um, and then I think for me, I, I'll also say there was a very strong religious undertone there. I spent a lot of time uh, in the church as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so it was, even with the little that you have, make sure you're always setting aside some to make sure that you make it through the pearly gates when your time uh, is, is called. So for me, there just weren't very many um, sort of, conversations about how to grow money it was more so around mm-hmm. hey if you if you it was almost like money was a faulty flower like if you if you just so happen to find one you better hold on to it you know for your for your dear life because there's no telling if you'll ever see this again mm-hmm. so it was a very very um different uh, experience than what Kirsten had yeah mine was more traditional middle class two parent household my parents were homeowners. They had corporate jobs. So no night shifts, no weekend shifts, went to public school. It was just a pretty standard American, you know, white picket fence upbringing. Now we were still black, but we were black in Atlanta. We relocated from Texas. We were little because of my dad's job. And at that time, Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta still was on a run of black mayors. We had black Mm -hmm. leaders in government. We hosted the Olympics in 1996. Like it was a up and coming city. And my parents benefited from that with several promotions at work and just never really experiencing economic uncertainty as I was growing up. And what we do have in common is that I also spent a ton of time in church. I was in church several days a week (laughs) with my mom. Um, And uh, the other thing that we have in common is that our parents were courageous enough to leave for better opportunities. Mm -hmm. Like my family is still 
the, the most of my, the bulk of my family is still in Texas and Julian's family is in New York and Jamaica. And they had the courage to just branch out and leave. And it's interesting. I just read an article. I think it was by the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal that even today, millennials live an average of like 100 miles. If you live more than 100 miles away, you're like very, very rare. Yeah. 100 miles wow. away from your parents. The average American lives around 18 miles yeah. away from their parents. So they never leave home. But millennials go a little further out. They go like almost like 75 miles away or 60 miles you gotta, away. You got to be a day away, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does not require a flight. No, so I spent, I got to travel early as a little kid. And I think these, these memories like kind of shaped my worldview to Julian's point about what's possible. I never felt mm-hmm. constrained by the, you know, 20 people I knew because I was always going somewhere. I would go to see family. We take family vacations. And so I think a, a lot of that shaped my perspective and my approach to work and to our life now. Mm. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> we met at work. at work. We, you know, when you get that, uh, that big job that's supposed to change everything. Yeah. Uh, well, we both got that big job and started on the same team on the same day. Uh, back in 2012. And so that's how we met. And um, it was like at that meet the team kind of event. Orientation. Orientation. Like here's the new class of people that are starting and are going to turn the ship around. (laughs) And um, we were both a little distracted, you know, (laughs) that day. So like, oh my gosh, who's that? So yeah, that's, that's, that was the origin story. That's so cute. I love that. Julian, I'm curious, you talked about growing up with scarcity and money being kind of tight. For you specifically, I notice people with scarcity mindsets go one of two ways. They either hoard all their cash or they spend all their cash. What did you find yourself doing in your early adulthood? Uh, hoarding cash uh, and taking great pride in it um, and, and going even further, right? Like like fully, um, you know, rejecting any notion of exuberance and spending mm. and really, really taking pride in, 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 in hoarding cash, not spending. Um, and again, like not, not for the purposes of investing to make it grow, right. not for the purposes of, you know, setting aside or building capital to start a business. It's really just being haunted by, the reality is that like life is way too comfortable and any day now it's all going to fall apart. Like mm-hmm. any day now they're going to really realize who you are mm-hmm. and it's all going to be taken away from you, whether it's a job or the home that you bought or the loan that you secured, it doesn't matter. Right. It was so deeply ingrained in me that like you come from a tough place and people like you aren't supposed to make it. And mm-hmm. so um, who are you to think that you're going to be the, the exception compared to any of the people that you've met and grown up with. And, and quite honestly, like I, I still suffer from that today. Like I cannot wrap my head around how I made it out. Cause I know so many mm-hmm. people who just were not able to like, and so it's like luck, divine intervention, hard work. I don't know all of the above, but um, it, it, it's, it's definitely still in me. Uh, I still have very strong reactions to, uh, to to waste or whatever I consider mm. waste. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think there is a benefit to that, right? The ability to tap into that in certain moments uh, is very helpful, obviously, because saving is, is 
biological thing, but not to the point where it's detrimental to your quality of life or your ability to nurture or maintain relationships or even just make money grow so that you can do more and have more options in the future. So it's it's been a bit of a process um, kind of getting to where I am. It's a tough one. Kirsten, what about for you? Was money something you hoarded or spent? Spent. <laughs> like I, <laughs> my, my religious upbringing and childhood caused me to believe in abundance, but in a really problematic way mm. where I wasn't as naive to think uh, that money grew on trees, but I felt like I had limitless possibilities to earn and that I, that money was just abundant. It was just out there. All I had to do was find it, but like, don't worry about like where it's coming from. And so um, I racked up a ton of consumer debt and I honestly did not feel any sort of way about it until I met Julian. Like I thought it was just normal. I assumed that most people were living this way. And when people talked about their bills, they meant rent, utilities, and credit cards. Like I just assumed that that was the whole point. And so, um, yeah, after I met Julian and he came with this totally different worldview and honestly was a little judgmental of, well, a lot judgmental of the way that I was living, <laughs> it caused me to, to investigate, like, why is that? And when I learned more, when I went beyond just the, 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 the addition and subtraction of financial literacy and really talked mm. about, like, what this leads to, what kind of life this leads to, what kind of choices you have available to you if you continue down this path of high debt usage and working to out earn your spending. Like if that continues, this is the kind of life you get versus this other way of life where it's like, if you would just pull back, invest a little bit, you could actually relax and at some point do whatever you want. And so when I became exposed to that, everything changed. Was that like instantaneous for you or was it, you know, months, years in the process? Like how did that work? Um, the curiosity was, was sparked instantly. Mm -hmm. It took me some months to find the right voices and examples and role models that made me like a believer, but I was instantly curious about this type of lifestyle. And then like, it wasn't ingrained in me until I had found those, those people that could show me like, Oh no, I'm, I, if she could do it, I can do it. If he can do it, I can do it. So yeah, but it didn't take long. It didn't take very long. Yeah. Usually, usually that's how it goes with financial independence stuff. Anytime you're like, all right, I'm kind of done with this. I get that spark. It seems like people change that really quickly. It's an immediate mindset shift. It's really interesting. Yeah. And it's one of those things, um, unlike some of the other larger goals in life that you can see pretty immediate results. Like assuming mm -hmm. you have a, uh, a job that pays you consistently, the minute you cancel a bill or cancel a service or refund something or turn in the car. It's like, it's an immediate like relief. And so you get hooked to that. Like for me, it was like, all right, I'm going to pay off this credit card and see how it feels. And then when I did, and I didn't have that bill anymore, it was like, oh, wow, <laughs> let me try another one. Yeah. <laughs> and let me not rack it back up. So yeah, it's, um, it's much easier than something like weight loss or, you know, nutrition. Those things take a lot longer to see benefits with finances. is like the minute you decide it's there. It's so true. It is so, so true. I think it's really interesting too, that you guys were able to pay off $200,000 in debt. 
Like what the crap? That is so much money. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that process. Was that something that you started like pre-marriage and you're like, okay, I'm going to start paying off debt. Mm-hmm. And then when you got married and you tackled it together, like how did that work? Exactly. Yeah, it was uh, all of the above. And it seems like so long ago, um, honestly, to the point where I think I kind of take it for granted. But um, it was everything from two car notes. I had some tax debt uh, that I needed to have like a payment plan with the IRS that I need to get rid of. Uh, there were some credit card debts in mm-hmm. there. I had some student loans mm-hmm. uh, that we needed to get rid of. There were and, wedding and expenses, wedding home renovations. Uh-huh. But the majority of that was the mortgage that we paid um, when after we got married. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. This is like early to like I bought that property in 2007. It was a condo townhome oh, um, for like a hundred and three thousand dollars like which which sounds crazy now like given the prices but but again 10 years from now we will probably be saying the same thing always um right (laughs) um but yeah so uh, it 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 included uh, that mortgage as well but it was it was really interesting because again we'd gotten these jobs we got these big pay raises we paid off all this other debt and so now you've got like the combination of dual income Um, upward mobility, mm-hmm. debt freedom, and now you've got a decision to make. And it was like, wow, we could, you know, as we were thinking about constructing this wealth plan, we were very much focused on real estate and thought that at the time, real estate was going to be uh, always going to be a part of our portfolio in mm-hmm. some way, aside from our primary residence. And so we were really intrigued by turning the property that was then our primary residence into a rental property. And we wanted it to be debt free. Like we were drinking the Dave Ramsey Kool Aid mm-hmm. at the time, and totally. you know, like all about it. But then also going back to you know to a degree of what we were saying before, we were also thinking ahead and thinking about the likelihood that we would have to support my mother, mm-hmm. uh, who was financially insecure. And so we said that the benefit of having this property or a number of properties is that if push comes to shove. We could always put her in there, right? And that could be a bit of a lifesaver situation where we didn't have to ever worry about future rent increases and that sort of thing. We've since abandoned that plan. Yeah. But all of that to say, <laughs> um, it wasn't a very good plan to begin with. But we didn't, we didn't know what we didn't know. Yeah, it was a starting point. Yeah, and I, you know, it was good intentions, um, <laughs> but. You know, I really actually, I'll give a shout out to Cassandra Descent, who actually is the one that kind of talked me off that ledge, really. Mm. And just helped me think about it. Like, what else could you be doing with your time and your money? Like, you can still support your mom, but figure out other ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of that to say, um, yeah, it included paying off that that mortgage. And so at that point in time, you know, we had really high income and a combination of that. Plus, we had just completely eliminated all the debt. It was either spend it or put it, you know, to 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 what we thought was a better use. And so, literally, as soon as those paychecks would come in, we would, I mean, gosh, I think the direct deposit would hit on Thursday, and by Thursday night or Friday morning, we were sending it because we just knew if you left it in there till Saturday, yeah, we were going out. We were going to book a ticket. <laughs> we were going. We were flying out somewhere because the reality is we could we could afford it at that time. Um, but I think there was also just a bit of skepticism with the job at a certain point. We were like, this is good, but I don't think it's going to be this good forever. Mm-hmm. And so let's let's make sure that we're we're doing something smart with with the money with the surplus. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. I want to dive into this because I think this is an interesting concept. I hear this a lot from people where they say, I can afford it. 
therefore I should buy it. And so I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you guys had a good income. You were doing great. You were paying off your debt. Like you, you had all this disposable income. It would have been very easy to just go blow that money and take some sweet vacations. And I know you guys did take vacations, but it would have been really easy to blow all of it on that kind of stuff. But you didn't like what held you back from doing that? Like, how did you get to that point where you said, I have the money, but I'm choosing not to spend it? It's a very traditional, I'm not going to say, maybe not traditional is the word, but it's something that I've seen is very common in the financial independence community is that you reach a certain point where you start to, now the marketer in me is waking up and saying, you know, you start looking for qualitative inputs. And what I mean by that is you can run the numbers and start saying, this is exactly how much you're going to save. But when you start looking at qualitative inputs and start measuring more abstract things like joy and fulfillment and happiness. Mm-hmm. I remember specifically asking Kirsten the question, how much, how happy are you? How much happier would you be if, you know, this would be like at dinner, at a nice restaurant, we just spent a couple hundred dollars. Great. How much happier would you be if we did this three times a week? Yeah. Or if we went somewhere and traveled sometimes, which is really interesting to us because we always placed a premium in terms of, the value that it added to our lives on travel. And we'd be somewhere and be like, wow, this is amazing. How much happier would you be if we did this even more? And you reach a point where it's like, actually, if you traveled more, it becomes disruptive for us, True. right? You kind of- I don't need, ever want to get used to this. You, like, <laughs> I don't know what that trait is, but like there's something to, when you get used to it, it stops being special. Correct. And anyone who's grown up in like a vacation location, correct. Even the early digital nomads who went to like you know the the most touristy spots, but for a couple of exceptions, they all eventually miss like having something to complain about. <laughs> like they miss the human experience of being able to relate to people who don't have it like all just, you know, Instagram filter life. And I think for us, it was to Julian's point where we just reached a point where it's like, I, if I have it three times a week, I'm not going to like it as much. And Mm -hmm. so I'd rather just save it for special occasions. And we do that to your point, like in real time, we do that as we're eating the most amazing meal to like burn it in our brain to say, you don't need this every single day. I remember even on our honeymoon, which was like supposed to be intentionally extravagant. Mm-hmm. And we were there for like two weeks. And I think I told her, I was like, I don't, I think about the makeup a term <laughs> called luxury fatigue. Cause I'm kind of <laughs> over real. Yes. I was like, I, I kind of need just like a regular piece of bread. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> a soggy fry. I need like, bring it on. <laughs> another croissant warm coke like just like, something yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you know a fumble somebody dropped something like it, it's just a lot and i was yeah. like i don't know I, I really felt like i don't know how people could do this every single day i mean obviously Super. i know how you could yeah. but i also believe that you just end up in a cycle where you're always looking for external hmm. validation external things things to buy further places to go. It was like, yeah, you start to understand why billionaires are Go literally to going to space. <laughs> like when you have because everything you run out of places on earth that make you feel that make you say, wow, yeah. right. So you run out of places. <laughs> so now you got to go further than, than literally only a couple hundred people have ever been in, in, yeah. in humanity. Right. And I was like, ah, oh, come on, man. Like, I don't need that. Yeah. So you don't, so you don't want to play that game. You kind of 
start to appreciate uh, the simpler things. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to get there, but I'm glad we, mm-hmm. we did. I, I love this too. I think it's the, the whole travel fatigue is interesting because it's so hard to get on any social media platform without being told what you're not doing enough of. And you're like, well, shoot, maybe I do need to just take another vacation. But I think one of the beautiful things about becoming financially independent is you can taste test that life. So if you're like, maybe I think I do want to do this seven days a week. This sounds great. You could actually go put your money there and try it and see if it works for you. Yeah. We're we're in that stage now where it's like, yes, I, I'm I'm not interested. Like location independence is mm-hmm. something that I'm really, really thinking about. And it's like, could we build a life where we spend three months here, six months here? And if we like it, we stay another six months or even just taking longer vacations instead of taking eight vacations every year. Maybe we just go somewhere for six weeks. Like we're we're kind of recalibrating our our lifestyle around that now. And I love that term, taste testing different lifestyles without having to like own it, without having to buy the $450,000 house and like move the entire family. Like we now have the option to just wing it a little bit, (laughs) like figure it out, which is so exciting. And it took us a while to realize like, oh, we're there. We we can do that. We Mm -hmm. can totally do that. Like give yourself permission to do that. I think that is the tough part. Yeah. 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 It still takes some unwinding from the old way of thinking. (laughs) I feel that. Um, It's like it's like ownership or bust. It's like actually no, you just rent it. You just rent it. Somebody bought it. (laughs) Somebody Somebody bought it. it. Already bought it. So like see if they want to let me use it for a little while. Mm -hmm. And now there's all these platforms that are like, yeah, you can. You can use anybody's anything. There's tools, their camera equipment. I was just about to say their bikes. Like we're getting ready to take a vacation. I was like, oh, do I really want to go buy a GoPro? I can only think of three times that I'm probably going to use it. And I was like, no, I'll just rent it. I could just just rent it. I was like, I don't, I literally, I don't have to spend a couple hundred dollars to let it just sit there for this vacation. I could just rent it or just ask. Or borrow it. Imagine. (laughs) Imagine. See if somebody has like, I'm sure there are a hundred people that follow us that have a GoPro that they haven't touched in four years. Like me and my drone guys, I'm telling you, it's another one. I, fell, I fell into that trap. I've used it twice in probably four years. No joke. Yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah. But I, I like the, even the mindset shift because I don't even think people understand that. Oh wait, that is an option. Like maybe I can go to my local library and rent something or borrow it from a friend. Like, I don't even think we sometimes think we that don't. way. We don't, we really don't. And I, I was talking to Julian about this last night. Like there's going to be an emergence of not just like borrowing, but actually like the vacation is you going to see your friends and staying at their homes. Like so true. the hotels, Airbnbs, going to like the city center when you're visiting, like y'all are all going to be in the suburbs, hanging out with your friends. And it's going to be a good time. Like yeah. I've been doing it with my girlfriends recently and it's been amazing. Like I'll just go spend the weekend in Charlotte, North Carolina. With, and it feels like a vacation because it's new to me, but I get to experience my friend's lifestyle and what her favorite Italian restaurant is and like we just sit and watch TV and then I come back home and like that's a vacation for me like Mm -hmm. I just think we're going to return back to simpler values that are more sustainable and actually build connection between people versus the ones that we have now which are so fast so comparison driven so expensive expensive. like so so expensive expensive. yeah like we are paying 
a mortgage worth of hotel bills to stay somewhere for, you know, four days. And it's just a room. I can't even cook my own meal. Like this is a mini rant. We've been on the road, you know, for our book tour. And so like, we've realized how much the cost of travel, especially now that we have a kid has like really increased over the years. Like we, we weren't traveling with him a ton, you know, before the pandemic, he could fit in our laps. And then during the pandemic, we took a lot of road trips. So now that we're back in the swing, it's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> his plane ticket is the same as mine. There's no kids meals for plane tickets. <laughs> right. so like, no. You're like, he's one, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> You're kindergartner. <laughs> That's yeah. so awesome. He's just a tall one-year-old. <laughs> Please don't judge him. <laughs> That'd be so damn funny. No, it's it's so true though, because it's like when you think about how travel was historically, it was like very glamorous and very mm-hmm. you pay, you pay for the expensive flights, and I mean all flights were expensive historically, but now it's becoming yeah. so much more accessible that it's becoming more norm to just travel. So it's like we're going back to that comfort. This is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. So, this gives everybody an idea of like, okay, you get your stuff together with finances. This is where your life could be full of options and and just a lot of fun. But Uh let's go back to like somebody who's maybe not there yet. They're just getting started, they're trying to figure out how to get their finances in order. Where do you think is the best place to really start? Um, you know, I, I hate to sound cliche, right. But it, or not cliche, but or I should just say like a bit of a robot, but, but in our book, we, we, we talk about this idea of, of giving your income a purpose. Yeah. Um, and I won't walk anyone through that. You know, if you're interested, you can read the book and get a general idea of why we created that framework. But I think if people are just getting started, I think those types of ideas are important because it, 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 I'm struggling to find another word here, but it it gives it gives you purpose. Right. It gives your time and your ability to generate income purpose. You have something to strive towards, um, and I think what it does is it really, in many cases, resets your value system. Because I think a lot of yes. people don't realize that you're just. So many of us are, are literally. There's a reason why, like all of these creative sort of paint this dystopian view, this robotic android-like view of the world of work and, and all those kinds of things, because so many of us don't even realize that we're just kind of on autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. You go in and you go to work and, and you know what, you feel it, you complain about it, but you don't even realize that the output of that is income. And if you're not really purposeful with what you do with that income, you just find yourself kind of floating through all of these different systems and these systems are not in place to benefit you no. right they're, they're in place to keep you at work to keep you <laughs> the in school place, system the health system to keep you subscribed the financial to keep you system coming back yeah totally. and so like you really have to be deliberate and you have to attack it on all fronts you have to attack it on the value level you have to attack it on a, on a defensive level on a tactical level, meaning what you're going to subscribe to, what type of media and messages Mm -hmm. you're going to allow into your your personal space and into your mind. You know, all of those things are really, really important because you you understand at a certain point that you do have the abilities to create like your wildest dreams. If you earn enough income, like you can pretty much do some really incredible things. 
but it's so easy to squander it. It is so easy to squander that opportunity. And I just remember as a young professional struggling with the idea because I wasn't making nearly as much money as I thought I was going to make. And I just remember looking at these job descriptions and these salaries and saying, like, what do you do with all this money? Like, what do these people do with all this money? I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and and back think, then, what was a lot of money? Like one hundred and twenty thousand five thousand dollars. Yeah, like fifty was grand for me would have been crazy. Like, <laughs> right, seventy five thousand dollars a year for me back then was a crazy amount of money to yeah, make totally. on an annual basis. Right, like I couldn't. I was like, who are these people? Yeah. yeah, where do you live when you make that kind of money? I had no idea. I was like, you mean to tell me you can just go to a restaurant anytime you want? Like that's crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. But but that's that's where I was. Right. And, and, and again, you know, it's not until you say, well, this is what I would do with that money. And you say I would live on 30 percent or 40 percent. I would invest 10 percent. Yeah. X amount will go. It's not until you start to look at all of yeah. those things and analyze and analyze it to be able to say, oh, so my job is to grow income, to keep this sort of part of the pie chart consistent or in some mm-hmm. cases to grow it in this case to eliminate it so that I can increase in other ways. And once you have that strategy in place, it really guides your decision-making and mm-hmm. your actions. And I think that's really what it boils down to. For some people, you may say it starts with budgeting or something like that, but I think it's about getting to the why first. You got to go that Defining that why, what you want to do, what kind of life you want to live, what kind of husband, partner, wife, father, all of those things. What do you want to do? And then you figure out how your income can help you achieve those things over time. Mm-hmm. So so all of that to say, I think that's that's the work that a lot of people really need to do. Uh, and, and quite honestly, I think that's relevant for someone who is just starting. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a good refresher for people who are a little further down the road as well. You have to do that work because your values change. You get married, you have a child, your values will change. So you need to reassess that thing. And it doesn't mean that you're discarding your goals, but it does mean that you are reevaluating so that you can make sure that you're staying on the right track. Mm -hmm. Mm, I love that you mentioned having to revisit this often and that I think it's something where a lot of seasoned people in finance tend to forget about that. Like eventually you get to a point where like, I I don't have to budget every month. Like I already know what I'm spending. I'm a creature of habit. I kind of get it. But it is really fascinating that you mentioned to the societal pressures. And one of the terms that you talked about in your book that is influencing the way that we spend money is this whole concept of like black excellence and how this is an unsustainable motivator for a lot of people. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, black excellence is a term of endearment for the most part. It's meant to be a rallying cry or a form of encouragement. But because it's seen so positively, a lot of us kind of internalize that as the standard Mm. and we attempt to be excellent in all things at all costs. And that in and of itself is not sustainable. You're not meant to be like excellence by nature is an occasional thing. If it weren't, then it would be the average. Right. So like what we're trying to tell people, like instead of embracing this mantra of black excellence in your career choices, in your jobs, where you're underpaid and underappreciated, like apply that logic in the places that matters, in the places that give you returns. 
be black excellent in your financial understanding of your situation be excellent in your planning and your and your skill building but like to give that and to apply that to your career hasn't hasn't ended well for most of us goes yeah. back to this one and well like <laughs> Um, it does. It doesn't get the result that you think it will. Yeah, it is. Um, it's also exhausting, and it's exhausting. It's, totally. it's, it's it's exhausting, right? Like subscribing to the idea that you have to work twice as hard for half as much. That you always have to be the first person in and the last person out. That regardless of what type of pain, discomfort, or microaggressions you deal with it is nothing compared to what your ancestors dealt with so therefore you don't have the right to complain um you know yes your arm is hurting and you may think you have carpal tunnel but that's nothing compared to what your parents had to go through and so like this mm-hmm. this notion that you have to be excellent that you cannot complain that you have to push through it that you have to be physically emotionally uh, resilient at all costs is, is, is really, really harmful. And it's interesting. It took me such a long time to connect these dots in 2007. I had the privilege of studying abroad in Japan, um, as a part of, of finishing up my MBA. And we spent a couple of weeks there. And as before we went, we spent a lot of time kind of preparing for, um, the sort of culture shock because it's like it's very different over there. They were explaining all of these different customs and obviously the language barriers, um, but more importantly, the, the the business customs that were very very different because we wanted to ensure that we weren't uh, disrespecting any of the people or the executives that we met. And they were also explaining some of these cultural concepts that they had there, like, like kaizen, this idea of continuous improvement. But then they started going into detail about the 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 the, the lifestyle, what they call like the Japanese businessman, right? Uh-huh. This this really um, intense, arguably obsession with work, and then they introduced us to this term called koroshi, which is literally a term that is horrific to think about, but it, I think it's literally defined as death by overwork, yeah. and. As we were writing the book and thinking about it, you know, if there's one thing, there are several things that I would have edited, but like I actually, one, I realized some of the limitations of English language. We don't have a word for this, but what we as Americans do, and certainly what I think a lot of Black Americans and Black professionals do because they subscribe to these ideas is not that different from what we see or know as Kiroshi in Japan. We are literally killing ourselves literally. right mm-hmm. it, it, and now in some cases in japan they're, they're it's like death by suicide right like they, right. they feel like they did not achieve or they are not honoring their family's legacy and those sorts of things but a lot of times it's just because they don't you know it's it, it's i'm just our version of it is like a slow death right and so you yeah. see it by overeating you see it by high blood um, pressure, high blood pressure. Yeah. you see it in fatigue you Autoimmune see it in cancer diseases. you see it in all of these preventable diseases yeah. and illnesses mm-hmm. that no one ever says is is directly correlated to the fact that we spend so much of our time mm-hmm. at work right uh, and i'm not just talking about the challenges of blue collar jobs being you know, heavy lifting and you're on your feet. Like it's also true in white college jobs and in offices. And oh, yeah. it's it's all of the above. It's the, it, you know, and so there's research to back this up around 
you know, all of these illnesses that can be tied to sitting at desks, mm-hmm. um, and, staring and being at stagnant and staring at screens, not having access to natural light and so on. Wage and so stagnation. On. So we just, we don't Limited have a benefits. word for that. There's not an American word for that yet. We've not evolved to that state yet, but I'm hoping um, that with our book, uh, we can we can at least start to get more people to question and to connect some of the dots between their chosen way of life, this life that puts work at its center. As much as you can say God and family all you want, what we do with our time is very much indicative oh, of so what true. we value. Uh-huh. So if we're being honest, it's work, maybe entertainment, not God, it's <laughs> work entertainment, right? Yeah, that's where we spend our time and our money. 100%, and so, yeah. and so this is this is these are some of the things that we're talking about, and I think that's that's why we were so um, why we had a little bit of beef with the term black excellence. You know, we throw it around there occasionally as we're celebrating people who've done incredible things, but we wanted to make sure that we show people the other side of that coin. Yeah, I'm glad you did too, because I think that so many people don't quite realize that pressure that's put on people. Mm. You see this a lot with immigrants too, right? It's immigrants, Mm -hmm. it's people of color. It's, it's like another level of pressure. Oh yeah. And it's insane to me that it's such a, I mean, it impacts you in so many ways, how you spend your money, you know, got to show that I've made it quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I have to buy the bigger house, the the better car. I have to dress a Mm -hmm. certain way. It's so, I mean, even like going to school, you probably take out too much in student loans because it's education is everything. That's the ticket to wealth. Absolutely. And so I think it's fascinating. And I'm really glad you guys talked about this in the book. I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that like when you go to buy a personal finance book or you sit in a seminar or webinar, it doesn't come up. People focus on don't eat out. And it's like, yeah, we're over here. Like, you know, you spend $5,000 a year going to visit your family. You also spend another $2,500 sending them gifts to indicate that you're well off. You also spend another blah, blah, blah. Like we're telling them like, that's the culture is a budget category. Like what it takes to uphold your cultural obligations is a significant budget category in, in people of color's life. And we have to start questioning whether or not that's still working for us and, Mm -hmm. and how we're going to adjust to make it, to make it, like to make it in this new world. Do you guys get a lot of flack for that? (sighs) Yes and no. Yeah. But, but I guess you could call it flack because I think people say, well, you guys embody black excellence, right? And they show you the cover and they say, well, your face is on the cover and look at money on the table. And that's Netflix quality stuff. And that's black excellence. And you guys live in Atlanta and, you know, so, so they, they, they say it. Um, But look, I literally just bought, Kirsten will tell you, I just bought two pairs of shoes. That's the first time I couldn't think of the last time. (laughs) Oh, thank God. bought. A pair of shoes. Even this shirt is new. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's only because like, we're unable to like get the funk out of the other shoes. Yeah. Our son was like, Dada, you stink. Yeah. Bro. Like, he's calling you son out. Told me I yeah. And I was like, finally, like if the five-year-old <laughs> says it, I've been saying it for years. Like, please. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not shading people who like nice things, but, but what I am saying and on, on a more serious note is, is really to Kirsten's point where it's like, you know, we have to look at these issues comprehensively. Mm-hmm. We have to look at the cost 
of this excellence and we have to measure progress to your point around where is all of this excellence going? Where is all of this academic achievement gotten us? Ah, to the top of the list of groups and cohorts who have the highest student loan balance. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like that's where it's gotten us, right? So why are we doing this? How are we actually measuring? What is the value of this thing? Mm -hmm. And I think there are parts of our our day-to-day life where we have been able to identify and carve out things like nutrition. We can say, you know, we should probably slow down on some of the soul food. (laughs) Right. So it's like, okay, what other parts of our life in cultural and social pressures might we be able to say, you know what, maybe we should cut out some of these other things too, right? Some of these other, you know, parts of the culture, whether it's American culture or African-American culture or Latinx culture, doesn't matter, gay culture, all of these different things that we have, like there's a financial implication to it. And if we're looking to have impact, we kind of have to put all the cards on the table. Mm -hmm. And we have to seek out community. Like at the end of the day, the, the issue, the framing of the issue might be unique to people of color, but like the issue itself where you have more obligations than you do money is not a unique thing in American culture. So like really reaching out to people who may not look like you, may not have the same interests as you and and being vulnerable and explaining and learning what the options are has been pivotal in our, in our financial journey. Like the conversations I've had at multiple financial conferences, whether it's FinCon, Statement, Sense Positive, can't buy, whatever it is, I have been so helpful. And it's from people who experience this with their parents and have a resource or have a community because they also have, you know, a child with asthma or, you know, here's what I did when I was dealing with the same health concern. And so that, that going back to like reconnecting with each other and knowing that there's more knowledge and power like in the crowd of people who are actually dealing with the issue versus Google or whatever advertisement you see on TV is like to me the the secret sauce. I love this. This is such a fun conversation. I think I could easily talk to you guys for hours about all of these topics on an individual level. It's just it's so like I mean this minority time. I love it. It's it's always so great. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about money on the table. Are we going to see another season? Uh, I hope so. Uh, we were having a conversation about it uh, actually yesterday and this morning. Uh, we've done two seasons so far. It is hands down, I think, the funnest project that we do. So um, good. It is so good. <laughs> thank you. I want to, I, and I want to make it so much better. Uh, the good news is um, we have, so we've signed what's called a shopper's deal. And we actually had one for a couple of years. And what that is, is it's a partnership with a production company that basically has the rights to take your concept and sell it to a major network. Woo-hoo. We have tried, we have pitched <laughs> Netflix, everybody, we've pitched them all. Um, and and they, you know, I have my thoughts on why they haven't haven't said or greenlit the project yet, but but it's but it's fine. Um, so we now have a new partner, uh, one who has a track record with with securing deals with a wider number of networks, but also who has a different point of view in terms of the types of networks that we should be going after. And it's not just networks, it's also like streaming platforms. And so whether it it becomes another self-funded bootstrap project that we do, um, which would mean it's basically another web series. If we do that, that's great. Um, or we get, we could do both, you know, yeah, but, but we don't really know. We're just, we're kind of in a holding pattern right now. Apparently there's a bunch of 
industry consolidation going on. And so no one's picking up projects, um, but we want to do it again. Um, and I think certainly as we've, you know, been on the road and meeting readers and viewers and listeners of our work, we've collected a lot of stories and we, we know exactly what stories we want to tell mm-hmm. um, and, and what topics need to be covered. And I, I mean, I'm personally excited that we would have a chance to tackle some of those subjects. And I think the concept is really ideal for that. Um, and I, and I will just kind of brace for, <laughs> um, you know, backlash if you will because we're going there right like i want to talk about the things i want to talk about the shift in generational values i want to talk about um christianity and church and the role that that plays in people's financial lives and all of those things i think are are on the table for the next season because those are the things that people are actually really struggling with they're not struggling with literacy issues at all they're struggling with trying to navigate these 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 tensions yeah. between what they know to be true, what they suspect to be true, what they believe is expected of them in terms of what they should do. Like the the that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you know, I, I also don't think we're looking to solve those issues, but I think if we can help spark the conversation, which is core to our mission. That's really all we want to do. And so if we can do that, I think we'll be good. So hopefully within the next year, we'll see a season three. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm excited about it. I can tell how much work goes into that. I mean, I do yeah. like an occasional five minute YouTube video. I'm like, I'm beat. This is tough. <laughs> I can only imagine a season. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm really yeah. excited for all the work that you guys are doing and on all the help you are providing to the financial space. It's just really fun to see different perspectives of financial independence. And it's just, I really appreciate everything you guys are up to. Thank you. Appreciate you, you, man. Yes, likewise. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about where everybody should go first and foremost by a copy of the book, but where should they go? Is there like a website that you think is the best place for people to start? Yeah, you can buy the book anywhere books are sold. Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble, not or Noble, <laughs> Amazon, <laughs> Target.com, Books a Million, whatever, all the bookstores, the library, you can buy the book there and you can keep up with us and our shenanigans at richandregular.com. We also are um, on all of the socials except for TikTok at Rich and Regular. So we have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. I love it. All right, guys, before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fires? Sure. All right. This is going to be fun. So we'll, the, the first question that I would love to ask each of you is what's one purchase you've recently made that has made your life better? Oh, well, you got shoes. Yeah. <laughs> got a new pair of sneakers. <laughs> I, I had one earlier and now I can't remember it. I will say that it is, what have I bought recently? Oh, a little battery operated fan that fits in my purse and folds out. Smart. It's come in handy. It has a <laughs> flashlight on it, a cell phone charger. Like it's just <laughs> like <laughs> the Swiss army knife of fans. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I pull it out, he's like, here you go. Go, go gadget fan. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm like, do you know why? Awesome. Okay. Next question for each of you. Where is one location you're dying to travel to? I would love to go back to Cape Town, South Africa. Australia. Ooh. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's wonderland out there. Like yeah. it's truly. It's the closest thing to like leaving the planet, in my opinion. <laughs> it's just going to Australia and seeing all the wildlife, that sort of thing. So it's on my list. It's a long trek though. From everywhere. I don't think yeah. from everywhere. A great place to go. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is rough. Okay. Yeah. Next question. What is one book aside from your own that you find yourself gifting most often? Um, there's a book called the way we show up. I think it's, oh, it's called how we show up by Mia Birdsong. Um, and that I just love it. Like it captures every belief that I have about community and relationships. And I give it to anyone who is struggling. And I'm, I, I don't know if he has one, this new one that I've recently read, uh, set boundaries, no peace. I think that's what it is. I might've gotten that backwards, um, by Nedra Tawab. And it's a book about boundaries across the board, which has been tremendously helpful. I do not recommend books uh, ever. <laughs> they, they tend to be more like films and whatever my flavor of the month is. Um, but I will say I've, I've been revisiting because um, it doesn't get nearly as much power as I think it should, but it's it's the index card um, by Helene Olin, I mm-hmm. believe. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that everything you need to know about money can fit on an index card. And they sort of break down those six or seven uh, recommendations. And so I'm, I'm just team, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Don't overcomplicate your life. And so anything that packages up really, really impactful information in a way that is super easy to digest is, is kind of up my speed these days. I like it. I have a sneaky suspicion that this last question is going to be very similar answers for both of you since you're very much on the same page with money. But in your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Community. (laughs) Having people that make you feel less alone or weird in the journey and can help you create new options and give you, you know, just give you the, the support that you need is to me, the secret sauce. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Community, it's not intellect. It's not any one particular fund or investing or any of that stuff. I mean, I think we are without question impacted and driven by culture. Like we are human beings. Our culture dictates the way that we think, the way that we see the world. And so when you are surrounded by people who find it normal to save and invest and or to, to live out of a live band. below your means <laughs> or... and to share resources and to not hoard. Like when, when that becomes your norm, you don't have to unlearn anything. It's just baked into who you are. It shapes the way that you think. Um, and you, you, you end up in a much, much better, I think, position. So yeah, finding a financial community of any type, I think that's so key to helping people withstand the journey or the transition from one way of life to another. I love it. Beautiful way to wrap up. You guys, thank you so much for your time. It's always fun hanging out with you and I'm excited to see all your upcoming travels and what this next season of your life looks like. I'm really stoked for you. Thank you. Same to you. Okay. What'd you think? Great conversation. And more importantly, I'm curious what your takeaways were. What are you going to walk away from this episode with? And what are you going to apply to your own life? For me personally, it was the importance between building up that community and why it's so important to have those tough conversations, which is what I hope to do more of on this podcast. So I just want to say thank you for being part of this community too. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for hanging out and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye. 
Hey there, quick favor. If you've been enjoying this show and you like all the work that's happening in the Money Nerds community and you want to figure out a way to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is help me get it to grow. And one of the ways that you can do this is by taking a screenshot and sharing it on social media to let people know that you're listening in. It's a small step, but it really does matter a lot. So take that screenshot, let people know you're listening in and tag me on Instagram at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co and let people know that you are a fellow money nerd. Thanks so much. I appreciate your support.